Good morning. Uh, my name is David McCauley, and I have the privilege of serving ICF as a pastoral assistant. Um, and it's my great joy and a privilege today to bring the word to you. Uh, this morning, uh, we'll be looking at the epistle of Peter. So please turn in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 13, verses, uh, verses 13 to 21. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 till 21. To give you the context of the letter, uh, the author is Apostle Peter, who was fisherman uh, before Jesus called him, and it is addressed to the early uh, Christians scattered across Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, primarily composed of Jewish and Gentile converts. They lived under Roman rule, facing societal and governmental hostilities due to their faith and their distinct lifestyle. Peter is writing to strengthen and encourage them in their faith amid adversity. In the passage, which uh, just before in verses 3 to 12, which was also read at the beginning of the service, the primary theme is of hope and salvation that is in Christ Jesus offering encouragement to the believers uh, amid their trials. This theme of hope and salvation becomes the basis in our passage this morning in verses 13 to 21, on which Peter calls the believers to holiness, a holy living, highlighting how Christians should respond to their hope in Christ amid adversities. So let's read a passage this morning, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 21. Therefore, preparing, preparing your minds for actions and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as your father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile." knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, you are an amazing God who loves us, dear Lord. You have called us your children, dear Lord. And as we dwell in your word, dear Lord, now, I pray that, dear Lord, that you will open our hearts and minds to receive your word, to receive your conviction, to receive your encouragement, dear Lord. I pray that, dear Lord, this time will be time of filling, filling, and dear Lord, that your spirit that is in us will guide us and lead us. Dear Lord, I pray this all in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. The command is, you shall be holy, for I am holy. In this passage, Apostle Peter presents a command which resonates across the time and generations. You shall be holy, for I am holy. 
This is not just a command uh, given, to, given by God to Israel in the book of Leviticus. It is a timeless call that echoes to us today, inviting us into a life that reflects the very nature of God. The word holiness in Hebrew means to cut, to separate, to set apart and pure. The holiness of God is described as his complete separation from sin and moral imperfections. This holiness is not just about uh, purity, but it also encompasses God's utter uniqueness and transcendence. It signifies that God is distinct from his creation in every aspect of his being and actions. The role of holiness of God is significant in the grand narrative of the Bible, and it impacts our lives today. Here is what Paul Tripp writes on the doctrine of holiness of God. First and foremost, the doctrine of holiness of God sits at the center of the grand narrative of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Without the holiness of God, there would be no moral law to which every human being is responsible. Without holiness of God, there would be no divine anger with sin. Without holiness of God, there would be no perfect son sent as an acceptable sacrifice for sin. Without holiness of God, there would have been no vindication of the resurrection. Without holiness of God, there would be no final defeat of Satan. Without holiness of God, there would be no hope of new heaven and earth where holiness will reign over us and in us forever. The holiness of God is the central, is central to the gospel. It is the backdrop against which the story of redemption unfolds. The holiness of God necessitates a response to human sin. It, it is what makes the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ both necessary and effective for salvation. Holiness is a communicable attribute of God, meaning it is an aspect of his nature that can be shared with or reflected in humans, or at least to some degree. We are called to be holy in all our conduct, mirroring God's nature, to be set apart for his purpose, marked by obedience to his will and commands. However, this sharing of holiness between God and us is only made possible through Christ, through faith in Christ. Through this faith, we are sanctified, we are made holy, not by our merit, but by the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and then continued work of the Holy Spirit in us, shaping and sustaining this holiness. A.W. Tozer says this about holiness. Although God wants his people to be holy as he is holy, he does not deal with us according to the degree of our holiness, but according to the abundance of his mercy. Honesty requires us to admit this. This amazing grace in Christ is the first thing Peter establishes in our passage with the word, therefore, referring to the gospel truth which was laid out in verses three till nine. Pastor Carson always reminds us that whenever we see this word, therefore, we should inquire what, why this therefore is therefore. Peter's call for holiness is founded on the theological truth about the blessing of our salvation in Christ. 
We have been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, given imperishable inheritance and promise that though we suffer now for a little while, inexpressible joy is coming. Therefore, Peter exhorts to live in holiness, to live lives based on God's grace shown to us in Christ Jesus. Thomas Schreiner writes, a theologian, believers are to obey because they are God's chosen pilgrims, because they have been begotten by the Father, because they have untouchable inheritance, and because of the greatness of their salvation. God's commands are always rooted in his grace. Another way of putting this is to say the indicative, what God has done for us in Christ, is always basis of the imperative, how we should live our life. To confuse the order would be disastrous, and the result would work righteousness instead of seeing holiness as a result of God's grace and power as a response to love of God in Christ. It is good to keep in our minds when we study the Bible, the commands on how to live always follow what God has done and accomplished in Christ. So when Peter calls us to pursue holiness, it is our response to God, to God's wonderful grace by the power through the Holy Spirit. We understand that it is not our deeds, but through God's grace. Christ has accomplished the work of our salvation on the cross. He sets us apart. This is our positional holiness in front of God. Believers are made holy before God. And based on this understanding, we are to work out our practical holiness. As Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We are called to life of holiness, but it is not just about attaining, it is not about attaining perfection, but about, about pursuing a life of sanctification where we grow more and more in the likeness of our Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. Knowing this, now that we have anchored this into our hearts, knowing this, let us now explore how we are to live in holiness, how we are to live in obedient lives, not just as a, not as a burden, but as a joyous response to God's wonderful grace shown to us in Christ Jesus. How shall we live? Our passage this morning in 1 Peter chapter 1, 13 to 21 is divided into three sections based on three main imperatives that appear in the passage. So verse 13, live with hope fully on grace. Verses 14 till 16, live as set apart of God. And then 17 to 21, live in the reverent fear of God. And the main idea this morning is simply this. God's holiness demands obedience anchored in the hope of Christ. God's holiness demands obedience anchored in the hope of Christ. So let's look uh, to verse 13. Live with hope fully on grace. So this 
grace that Paul is calling, to, calling us to is hope in the future grace. After, Paul, uh, after Peter lays out the glorious indicatives of our salvation rooted in the work of Christ, he presents the imperative. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The definition of hope in the dictionary is to cherish a desire with anticipation, to want something to happen or to be true. But the hope that Peter is referencing to is not uncertain or wishful desire, but rather a confident and assured expectation. This hope is described as living, steadfast, concrete, and firmly anchored in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter's call to hope is in the future grace associated with the second coming of Christ. This anticipation is of ultimate salvation, which will lead to sinless perfection upon Christ's return, thereby completing the process of sanctification in the life of believer. John writes, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The work of purification is the work of the Holy Spirit, who gives us the desire and the strength to live out the truths of the gospel. For, the, for Peter's original audience in Asia Minor who were facing various trials and challenges due to their faith, this hope was a source of immense encouragement. Peter writes in chapter three, verses 14 till 16, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make the defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. With hope entirely fixed on the grace that is to be revealed in Christ, provided them now, provided them then and to us now, the encouragement to live holy lives, knowing that our struggles are temporary and would ultimately be resolved with Christ's return. Christ will return and he will make everything perfect, everything holy, as it was meant to be. So Peter's exhortation to live confident expectation of the future grace is grounded in God's sure promises in the resurrection of Jesus and then confirmed in us by the power, by the Holy Spirit. Now that we are securely anchored in the hope of grace, Peter gives the directives on how we are to live by, therefore, by preparing your minds for actions and being sober-minded. Holiness requires a prepared and a sober mind. The phrase, preparing your mind for action, is more literally translated in Greek as gird up the loins of your mind, which was a familiar idiom in the ancient time, signifying readiness to do some, labor, to do some hard labor, or getting ready to go into a battle or a fight. It is similar to the phrase that we use, rolling up your sleeves. That means getting ready to do something. Back in the day, people used to wear long robes 
uh, and tucking the ends of these robes into their belt would allow them quick and um, unimpeded movement. This action is also seen in Exodus 12, verse 11, where Israelites are instructed by God on how they are to eat the Passover meal. It writes, it says, in this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. With, the, with your belt fastened is the same phrase as girded loins, indicating the preparedness of the impending departure from Egypt. Peter is calling us to prepare our minds for the challenges and the battles that lie in holy life, holy living. Not only does holiness require a prepared mind, but also requires a sober mind. The word sober-minded literally means not drunk, but it extends beyond to mean living with intentionally, intentional and disciplined mindset, avoiding uh, the mental and the spiritual distractions. Just as laws against drunk driving exist due to impairment of judgment under the influence, spiritual sobriety is essential so that we are not influenced by the world, worldly ideas, but directed by the Holy Spirit. Peter's call to spiritual alertness is not without reason. He warns us later in the letter in chapter five, verse eight, be sober-minded, once again, be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like the roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. We need to remember as believers, we have an adversary and the reality of the spiritual warfare that we are in. Our thoughts are powerful drivers of our actions and our decisions. What occupies your thoughts? Is it work, fears, family, desires? Do you consume media through mindless scrolling? I wrote that for myself because I found convicted by this. It is important to note what occupies our mind because it dictates the patterns of our thoughts and then our actions. Paul warns us in Romans 12 to do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by renewing of your mind. How do we renew our minds so that we are prepared and sober-minded? Renewing of mind involves immersing ourselves in God's word allowing its truth to reshape our thinking, reshape our values and perceptions. This transformation process is crucial for discerning and rejecting worldly patterns and actively obeying God's command, taking every thought to captive for Christ, as Paul puts it, and setting our minds completely on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Christ. So having laid the foundation of holy living, which is to have a mindset that is anchored in the hope of grace, Peter goes on in verses 14 till 16 to call believer to holiness. He says, be holy, living as set apart for God. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 
In this section, the main verbs commanding the action is firstly the negative imperative in verse 14, do not be conformed. And then secondly, a positive imperative in verse 15, be holy. Both of these commands are rooted in believers' relationship to God as his children. A relationship that is a gracious gift highlighted by Peter in verses 3 to 4. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are born again into a living hope. This spiritual rebirth grants us not only a new life, but also a new identity as adopted children of God. So we have new identity through Christ. And this new identity is rooted in the relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.26 For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Our union with Christ signifies more than just forgiveness of sins. It represents the fundamental change in believers' spiritual condition. We are sanctified. We are made holy. This is our positional uh, holiness. And this is our permanent status in front of God the Father. Before, we were under the dominion of sin, but through Christ, we are set free. This doesn't imply that we are entirely free of sin or from its presence or from its influence in our lives. But crucially, crucially, it, is, it means that it no longer holds ultimate authority over us. We are in the kingdom of Christ. Sin, which held us captive, is now dethroned. And we are called to a new way of living, one that aligns with the values and the principles of our heavenly father. Romans 6.22 captures this new reality. But now that you have been set free from the sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. Being set free from sin and becoming slaves of God signifies a radical change in our spiritual allegiance. This new servitude to God is not burdensome, but liberating, leading us towards holiness, culminating in the promise of eternal life. It's a journey from bondage to freedom, from death to life. The new way of life is characterized by obedience to God and empowerment to live in this new life comes from the Holy Spirit. As believers, we are not left to our own devices to fight and resist the sin. The Holy Spirit that dwells in us, guides us, convicts us, and empowers us to live lives that are pleasing to our Heavenly Father. The Holy Spirit enables us to resist the temptation of sin and to live in a way that reflects our new identity in Christ. It's a journey of continuous growth and sanctification where we increasingly where we increasingly reflect the character and holiness of Jesus. Empowered by the Spirit in this new identity, Peter commands, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as, who call, as he who called you is holy, you shall be holy in all your conduct. Now the imperatives of not conforming to the former ignorance and to be holy becomes more clear. Our identity of God as his children carries implication for our conduct in this world. We are called to holiness. 
as children often mirror the traits of their parents? What would be the first thing people say when they see a newborn baby? Or let me scratch that, because first thing people would say how cute the baby is. The second thing would be who the baby resembles. He has his father's eyes, he has his mother's smile, right? So as we are now the children of God, we need to represent him in our thoughts, in our actions, in our attitudes, making us distinct from the worldly ways. In Old Testament, God called Israel to be a nation that is set apart, distinct in their worship, in their laws, in their practices. They were designed to be different from the surrounding nations, pointing to a God that is holy and utterly different from the gods of the pagans. Israel Israel was to be the light to the nations, showcasing the righteousness, the justice, and the mercy of their God through their communal and individual lives. Peter in this epistle uses the Old Testament concept of holiness to address the believers, emphasizing that God is holy, his people should also be holy in all their conduct. In chapter two, verse nine, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into the marvelous light. He extends this concept of holiness to the church by calling all believers a royal priesthood. If you remember the priestly duties, uh, the Levites were chosen uh, as a priestly tribe of Israel. Only they could serve uh, in the tabernacle or and then later in the temple where God dwelled with Israel. The priests were given additional laws on keeping their purity because they served in, in the immediate presence of their holy Lord. Their purity was a reflection of their role as intermediaries between God and his people. Peter calls the believers, both Jews and Gentiles, the royal priesthood. Under the new covenant in Christ's blood, we are granted direct access to God through Jesus Christ, the ultimate high priest. The role of believers as priests in the new covenant is, more, is not about rituals and animal sacrifices, but rather living lives of service and worship. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, Rome, uh, Paul writes in Romans 12, verse 1, by mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Since we are free from the bondage of sin, the exhortation to the believers is to live lives that are distinct, separate from the prevailing culture, mirroring God's holiness. It involves clear departure from sinful behaviors and attitudes of the world and alignment with God's character. It involves serving God and others and reflecting the love, compassion, and righteousness of Jesus Christ in our daily lives. Jesus, uh, just as Levitical priests interceded on behalf of Israelites, the new covenant believers intercede for one another in prayer and love. We are called to live in a way that our life becomes a testimony to the grace and transformation that is in Christ Jesus. Peter calls believers into a life of holiness. This is rooted in their new identity in Christ 
and it is empowered by the Holy Spirit. The holy living is characterized by life that is set apart for God, reflecting his holiness. The last imperative that we'll look at, uh, that Peter gives, is to conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of the exile. So living in the reverent fear of God. Verse 17, and if you call him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. So live in holy fear. Again, Peter begins by pointing out our relationship to God. Fearing is fostering a balance between understanding his holiness and experiencing his love. In scripture, God is revealed as both as loving father and also a righteous judge. For instance, in John 3.16, the loving nature of God is highlighted in sending us his son, indicating his desire for all to have eternal life through Jesus Christ. However, the father, this fatherly love does not negate his role as judge, who will one day judge the world in righteousness. Acts 7 verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed, referring to Jesus. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This duality demands that our relationship with God is characterized by both intimacy and reverence. A proper fear of God leads us to closer relationship, a more respectful relationship with him, where we can boldly stand before the throne of grace, yet maintain an attitude of reverence and awe. Hebrews 4.16 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Fearing God is not about being terrified of God, but rather involves a deepest respect and awe to his majesty and his holiness. This kind of fear is rooted deep in the understanding who God is and our position before God. The Bible frequently speaks about the fear of God as a beginning of wisdom. Understanding God's nature as a judge who's fair, righteous, instills in us a sense of accountability and sobriety in how we are to live our lives. It reminds us that while God is loving and merciful, he is also just and righteous, holding all humanity accountable for their sinfulness. And it is according to his holy standard. The fear is mixed of reverence, admiration, and awe, rather than dread and fear, dread and terror. It is recognition of God's absolute holiness, justice, and power, contrasted with human frailty and sinfulness. It is recognition that brings believers to a place of humility, dependence, and deep respect for God and his commands. Jeremiah 32, verses 38 to 40. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for their own good and the good of their children after them. 
I will make with them an everlasting covenant that is in Christ Jesus, that I will, turn, I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn away from me. God intends to establish relationship with his people, characterized by deep reverent fear, but a fear that is rooted in love. The divine fear is a spirit-worked fear that serves a good purpose in driving a, driving a sinner to Christ. Seen as a gift of God placed in the heart of his people, enabling them to remain faithful, preserving them from turning away. The fear of God is not an opposition to the hope that we have in Christ, the hope that we have been looking at. Instead, they complement one another. It should not lead us to doubt our salvation. Romans 8.1 assures us of that. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The last and the greatest motivation to, for holy living, for holiness, is the price paid for a ransom, which Peter highlights in verses 18 to 21. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was, manifest, was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. We were slaves to sin, living in a futile way, a life that was empty, meaningless, lacking true purpose and direction. But through Christ, we are brought to a purpose. We are brought from emptiness to fullness, from darkness to light, from slavery of sin to freedom in Christ. A redemption is secure, it's unchanging, it is paid with the imperishable price of our Christ's blood. A testament of God's immense love for you. This is not subject to change or recall. It stands eternal, showcasing God's love for you. Therefore, live as God's redeemed, in holy reverence and awareness of the price paid for your redemption. This understanding shapes our daily conduct, grounding us in the fear of the Lord and assurance of our salvation in Christ. As God's children, we are called to live lives that reflect his holiness, motivated by love and sacrifice of Christ. As we conclude this morning, Beloved, your redemption is not an afterthought, but it's a part of God's eternal plan. Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, revealing the depth of his love for you and the sovereignty of God's redemptive plan. Jesus, the eternal son, humbled himself, took on humanity, lived a perfect life, experienced death on the cross, and was resurrected winning victory over sin and death, inviting us into a life that is not just free from sin, but abundantly filled with his righteousness.
So in your time of exile and suffering, remember this call to holiness, to pursue his holiness, set your hope fully on the grace of God that will be brought to you at his return. Live with a prepared and sober mind. Live as set apart people of God with reverent fear. But above all, above all, live in full knowledge and assurance of Jesus Christ's love for you. He shed his precious blood for you, redeeming you for himself. Let's pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing to us the beauty and necessity of a life driven by grace and marked by holiness. We are grateful for the grace you have lavished upon us through Christ Jesus. The grace not only saves us, but also empowers us to pursue holiness. Help us, Lord, to live out this grace in every aspect of our lives, reflecting your holy character in our actions, thoughts, and words. Thank you for the assurance that in our quest for holiness, we are not alone. Your spirit guides us, strengthens us, transforms us into the likeness of Christ. I pray that we'll continue, dear Lord, to set our hope fully on the grace that will be revealed in the coming of Jesus, preparing our mind for actions and living soberly in this mind, dear Lord, I pray. May our lives be a testament and of the transformative power of your grace. Dear Lord, I pray this all in your mighty and precious name. Amen. Amen. And as the worship team comes up, just a few questions for a reflection this week. Live with hopefully on grace. The grace of God is revealed in Christ as our foundation for holy living. Reflect on what are you filling your minds with daily? Are your thoughts and meditations helping you focus on God's truth and grace? And then live as set apart for God. Our new identity in Christ calls us to live holy lives. Reflect, are there aspects of your life where you're still conforming to the former way of ignorance or worldly patterns? Are you engaging with your church to grow in faith and setting your hope in Christ? Then lastly, live in the reverent fear of God. Reflect on what changes might you need to make to live in more profound sense of reverent fear and accountability before God. Beloved, if you have not known Jesus, do not harden your heart this morning, today, but respond with humility. Respond to this free gift of grace in Jesus. While God judges the sin because of his righteousness and his holiness, those who hope in Christ need not fear condemnation.